This is R.J. Rashtuni, Easy Chair Number 145, May the 6th, 1987. Today we have with us Joseph McAuliffe, who is the author of our Dominion Work section of the Chalcedon Report. And Joseph, besides having an extensive ministry from coast to coast and soon in Australia, to Christians and to Christian businessmen, is also very knowledgeable as far as fundraising methods and campaigns are concerned. This now is a matter of very great concern because we have seen in recent weeks some dramatic events in the area of fundraising and some disrepute for the church. Joseph it's a pleasure to have you on the Easy Chair again, and uh, especially on so important a subject. Well, thank you, Sass. It's a privilege to be here again. Now, could you tell us something about the present attitudes towards Christian fundraising? I like to describe the present attitude towards Christian fundraising by borrowing a phrase from somewhat of a cult movie classic called The Blues Brothers, where one of the actors uh, named Cab Calloway, famous jazz music- musician, runs into Jake and Elwood, the two blues brothers, who ask Cab how he's doing, and Cab says, boys, things are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are bad right now, Roussas, in terms of evangelical Christianity, particularly in the whole financial realm and uh, the uh, perception that the public presently has concerning uh, our relationship with money and particularly raising funds. I'd like to cite a few uh, polls that uh, have come out of my research that I think reflect just the current crisis and attitude uh, that the world, as well as the body of Christ, has concerning uh, our approach to fundraising. These were all polls that have been taken within the last three weeks. The first one is from U.S. News and World Report and CNN, which reported that 62% of Americans presently hold an unfavorable view of TV ministers. 35% have indicated that their opinion has worsened since the Oral Roberts-Jim Baker controversy has broken out. The New York Times-CBS poll reveals that 75% of Americans believe that TV ministers are, quote, too concerned with money and that even 50% of those who viewed the programming held an unfavorable view of the financial emphasis. Uh, The USA Today Gannett News Poll has disclosed that 60% of TV ministers are primarily trying to, quote, enrich themselves, end quote, with only 10% rendering, in their opinion, genuine service to God. The same poll also cited 90% of the respondents disapproving with the fundraising techniques employed by the ministers, and 90% believing that Oral Roberts was lying when he said that God was going to take his life. And recently, a Gallup poll has unveiled that 40% of Americans believe that very little Christian fundraising is either honest or ethical. Now, one last statement I'd like to make concerning these polls, again, is that uh, these polls 
were given not just to unbelievers, but they were given to Americans in general. And in the general population, if we have anywhere from 40 to 50 million evangelical believers, the polling seems to be representative not only of the secular world, but also even uh, these are opinions that are held by uh, Christians as well. And I think that that is a point worth noting because some uh, have been very, have wondered if the church uh, has had a very forlorn attitude towards uh, the Roberts and Baker situation and that this is an hour of embarrassment, which it is in part. Yet I think the polls also indicate that the Christian community itself is basically fed up and itself has been embarrassed by the fluff and the circus and the amusement park presentation of our faith. And so uh, it's not only the world, but it's the church that's very concerned with what's been taking place in the whole area of raising raising funds. You have a personal acquaintance with and knowledge of most of the major TV evangelists and broadcasters in the field of Christianity. Would you say that uh, they're all beginning to suffer as a result of this kind of uh, a false presentation, this... Uh, whining for Jesus' uh, mm -hmm. method of fundraising. <laughs> yes, uh, all of them right now, even Billy Graham from all the top ten TV ministers have already stated that their revenues are significantly down. Jerry Falwell uh, said several weeks ago that uh, after the first month since the controversy broke out, his funds were down $2 million dollars. Uh, Billy Graham said his funds have been down approximately 25%. And on the average, TV ministers are be are losing between 35 and 40% of their revenues, which uh, they cannot afford to do unless they're willing to make severe, drastic cutbacks, uh, which most of them are remiss to do. In other words, I predict that uh, the future of... Christian television is in a very precarious state. I personally worked uh, at a telethon recently uh, down in uh, Florida. I, a friend of mine owns a Christian TV station. In fact, he owns eight Christian TV stations. And I appeared on their telethon to speak about Christian television. And I'm not against Christian television. I think a lot of the programming is suspect and vastly needs to be improved. However, I think it can be an important medium for communicating the gospel and ministering to people, let's say, who are shut-ins and the elderly who uh, may have a difficult time uh, going to church. But uh, So I was on the air, and then I worked the phones, and it was what struck me was uh, the high rate of negative calls that came in to the uh, station. Uh, I worked there for about an hour, and on the, I would say one out of three calls were very negative, very critical, very cynical in nature, uh, encouraging uh, Christian television to shut down. I talked to the owner of the station and as well as several of the other operators who've been working these telethons for years. This, this station had, had been in existence for eight years. And in a normal telethon, they get about one bad call for every 15. Mm -hmm. 
and the other operators were reporting about the same percentage, one out of three being very cynical and negative. Now, I know some of this is piggybacking on the Roberts-Baker crisis, but I think in general there has been a frustration and disappointment that uh, has registered within the Christian community towards the way monies are being emphasized and attempted and being attempted to be raised by the Christian TV ministers. Can you give examples of unethical fundraising and misuse of funds? Well, the Gallup poll I think is is really significant here because uh, Gallup lists about seven reasons that people consider uh, fundraising by Christians to be unethical and dishonest. And I'd like to add, uh, I've had a lot of experience in uh, the political realm in the whole area of fundraising. I come out of a fundraising family. My dad was treasurer of the uh, Democratic Party in New York State for 40 years and spent a good portion of his time raising money. I also have a younger brother who, during the 1980 and 1984 Democratic campaigns, headed up their entire fundraising operation. So I have had uh, insider involvement, you might say, on political fundraising. And one of the things that strikes me is how relatively indifferent there is so little difference between what uh, the, the, the secular politicians employ in terms of uh, the techniques they use in raising money and like what the church is doing. And in, in fact, in my opinion, the secular politicians and many of the humanistic uh, charitable groups and other organizations may be closer to manifesting integrity in fundraising than what has been going on in the church and we'll get to this point as we as we move along but what they're not doing that we're doing which I think is most striking is that we are violating the third commandment in the way we raise money the third commandment being thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain and uh, most Christians I think think that uh, the third commandment means don't use a four-letter word or don't cuss but to use God's name in vain is to put the name of Jesus or the name of God upon anything that he does not sanction. Now, when, uh, So when you're using God's name promiscuously or haphazardly or capriciously or in some way to uh, justify your action, you're using the name of the Lord in vain and there is very little Christian fundraising that is not done in God's name. Mm-hmm. And that is something that at least our secular counterparts, our humanistic counterparts, our politicians don't do. Uh, now, they, we, uh, when we also employ many of the same techniques that they do, but that's one thing they don't do is they don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, I'd say that uh, well, one of the biggest reasons that uh, the Gallup poll brought out that uh, people list for Christian fundraising being if in, unethical uh, is is the misuse of funds, mm-hmm. just the general misuse of funds. For example, I don't know how many PTL supporters were aware that nearly a quarter of a million dollars was being set aside for hush money mm-hmm. to pay to Jessica Hahn. Uh, those monies were raised by applying sincere spiritual uh, appeal letters uh designating the need for the gospel to be promulgated to the nations and or to help uh, needy people in some place. 
they didn't say anything in their literature or on the air that they were going to be setting aside a quarter million dollars for hush fund money, or for that matter, the half million dollar homes and the Rolls Royces and the other things. Yes. Uh, so this is fraudulent activity that's taking place because when they raise the money, that's where the money comes from. Is these kind of a uh, it's, it, it derives from the appeals that they make over the air or through the mail, and they tell the people the money is going to be going to this, that, and the other that seems very worthwhile and noble, but it's not going there. Another, uh, another case that I was just made aware of is where one, I won't mention the name, but one of our ranking TV ministers uh, did a whole appeal, this was several years ago, to Feed the hungry in Africa. Remember, like when, mm -hmm. what was it, uh, uh, the whole feed the world thing and yeah. live aid and the rock stars and everybody was trying to help out Ethiopia. And uh, you know, a lot of Christians are involved, and I believe that's a worthwhile cause to try to help feed the poor here, there, and everywhere. But this particular evangelist raised $3 million dollars. Now, the books reveal this, that they were able to account for $3 million coming in that, was, that were designated to feed the starving children in the Sudan. But the books also reveal that of that $3 million, only $300,000 went over to the Sudan, and of that $300,000, that supported 15 college students to be able to study full-time in the Sudan, as well as the refurbishment of a camp, and that approximately $75,000 was left over for food, of which they weren't sure if any of the food even got to the starving people. This is one of the areas that people are very upset about when it comes to Christian fundraising, is that, hey, the money's not being used uh, in the way that it was supposed to be used. A second reason that Gallup cites uh, is that uh, the people are basically dishonest in their fundraising presentations. Uh, it is inconceivable to take at face value some of these wild statements and claims of the appeal letters. Uh, I get many of them across my desk. I'm sure you do as yes. well. Uh, some of the ones that, I, that I've received and saved is, has, has included phrases such as, God has shown me, Mr. McAuliffe, that you're to send me $100 for this great cause of ours. I had one evangelist write to me and say, I was awakened last night by the Lord from a fitful sleep with your name on my heart to be our donor. <laughs> Another quote is, and this uh, was, I promise to personally pray for your every need when you send in your donation. And of course, this came with a computerized bulk uh, carrier route label, uh, Lord knows how big the mailing list was. Can you imagine these people praying for each of the donors' needs? Possibly they may have upwards of, oh, even if you only had a hundred donors. Who's got time to pray for the need, the every conceivable need of a hundred people? It's ridiculous. Uh, possibly maybe they could program a computer that would spend all its time praying supposedly for these people's, but if uh, it's it's just a flagrant lie to think that uh, these people are actually praying, you know, for our needs. Another quote is, "I guarantee you, Mr. McAuliffe, that you will receive a minimum of a thirty-fold increase, and possibly up to a hundred-fold increase when you invest in this great work of God." 
not a bad return. Yeah. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a bad investment. But uh, as you know, it, it just doesn't work. No. Uh, it's it's lying. It's it's again, it's another violation of the commandments of the Lord, and and people are fed up with it. Uh, again, I just want to draw attention to the flippant, arrogant, and pres- presumptuous use of God's name. I would like to see Christians just not use the name of the Lord at all unless his name is going to be used in accordance with his revelation. You know, it says in Psalm 138, verse 2, God says that he has magnified his word alongside his name. And so when we use his name apart from his word, that's where we get in trouble. And I think in many of these fundraising appeals, uh, the, the techniques, the methodologies, the spirit, the attitude, uh, the phrases that are employed, these cannot be substantiated by God's Word. No. And yet, the, again, His name is placed upon it. Um, a third area that uh, the Gallup uh, records is that uh, fundraising is much too commercialized, Christian fundraising. Well, let's consider uh, a recent appeal letter that was sent out by the Salesian priesthood for the support of its mission. Uh, here's the quote. Enclosed are six sweepstakes tickets for $5 each that will give you a chance of winning a new Oldsmobile and help us to support God's work. <laughs> uh, the commercialization of, most Christian, of much Christian fundraising is, again, no different than our secular counterparts. Uh, what are some of the techniques employed in this commercialization? Well, just look at the envelopes, the teaser copy, as we call it, where we'll see jet mail or, uh, quote, open immediately, postal express, uh, priority personal correspondence. And then we read the small print on our compu- computerized personal uh, mailing label, and it's, again, it's the, uh, it's the bulk rate carrier route. But they contain these fraudulent lies, these come-ons that uh, to make it very appealing and, and very personal. But again, it's not integrity. It's not truth. And truth and integrity should characterize everything that we do. Uh, another area Gallup mentions is the high-pressure tactics that Christians employ. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. I think it had its strongest roots in the uh, some of our earlier Christian radio ministers the pitch goes something like this. Unless you, uh, unless you beloved family of supporters will send us $5, $10, $20, $100, $1,000, maybe a $1 million. Bless God, I know some of you can do that. This ministry is going to fail. Uh, I saw another telephone, telethon recently where the, uh, where the owner of the station actually was on his knees begging, begging the people to send in money. Uh, saying that they were going to go off the air if the people didn't send in money, and was even praying that God would heal the phone lines. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what about the Bible that says uh, the righteous don't... I have never seen the righteous go hungry or begging bread. What statement are we making about the God we believe in when we have to resort to these kind of begging tactics in order to get money? I had a letter uh, weeks ago before the Baker scandal... Uh, broke and it was from a woman a telephone call from a woman who is a very simple devout character totally uncomplicated and the bank with her money she's a widow 
had failed. Hmm. So she was in difficult financial circumstances. But she had either received a letter or had some kind of appeal that had upset her, and she called asking my counsel, should she give? After all, Tammy says she needs my help. (laughs) That is both funny and yet Mm -hmm. sad that people feel a burden as though Mm -hmm. they're failing somebody who's appealing to them for help. Now that's exploitation. Yes, it is. Well, uh, you've made a point in the article you've written for the Calcedon Report on fundraising, uh, uh, fundraising, that this compares to medieval indulgences. That's correct. I think that's an excellent uh, comparison because what historians failed to note is that it was a while before Luther's doctrine became understandable to the people. Mm-hmm. But what immediately drew priests and princes, it was the princes who made the Reformation possible, to Luther's side was that he attacked a false method of fundraising, mm-hmm. indulgences. That's right. Later, they picked up the doctrine mm-hmm. because they felt so strongly favorable to his attack on a false method of fundraising. Now churches, Catholic and Protestant, are routinely involved in this. Mm-hmm. So one of these days it may trigger a like protest against both. Yes, uh, let's hope so. Uh, there is a comparison that can be made between the medieval indulgences. Uh, I read a story recently of a professor at Calvin College who sent out a hundred letters requesting doctrinal and financial statements from various Christian organizations that were soliciting funds. Of the hundred, only nine actually sent them what he requested for, but uh, what he got from the rest were fundraising appeal letters that were accompanied by uh, numerous pennies, uh, facial soap, uh, bookmarks, uh, Holy Land maps, uh, pencils, he got a foam rubber hospital slipper from someplace, <laughs> and many cheap trinkets, most of them claiming uh, spiritual power, and he also got a twig from the Holy Land. The Holy Land. Uh, again, we see uh, prayer claws and sacred medallions and healing napkins, uh, all of these claiming supernatural power uh, that will take place in the individual's life if they send in uh, money to support that organization. Now, what I see in that, too, Roussas, is a return to paganism. Yes. Now, Carl Henry, who's somewhat a well-known evangelical theologian, uh, made the statement at a conference in Kansas City that I thought was interesting. He, Many people have talked about how Francis Schaeffer has says we live in a post-Christian culture, uh, and we now live in a humanistic culture that uh, humanism is the religion of our society today. Henry went on, though, and in lieu of these techniques and methodologies and toys that we uh, are applying in Christian fundraising, that we've gone beyond humanism, or at least we're entering into a branch of humanism that is more akin to paganism. Yes. And... uh, 
I think that that's very true. That you know, paganism with its pantheon of gods and uh, superstitions and fears and these kinds of things, uh, worship of uh, of, uh, of uh, ornaments and articles and and things of that nature. That's what it really smacks at. Is is uh, Christianity, uh, or at least uh, these Christian organizations, applying paganistic techniques to generate funds. Yes, I heartily agree. One thing Cal Seaton has done from the beginning is to avoid debt. Mm -hmm. And this means that uh, we live on what we get. Yes. If uh, it doesn't come in, some of us wait until it does before we take a paycheck. Mm -hmm. We pay our bills first, and we take our salaries. Mm -hmm. This means that when there's been an economic downturn, we haven't been wiped out, as many groups are, yes. are uh, forced to resort to all kinds of unethical and dishonest pleas mm -hmm. because they're head over heels in debt. Yes. Everett Ridley Taylor, uh, one of the men on our mailing list who wrote the article on the Jubilee, a marvelous article on our Journal of Christian Reconstruction, the business issue, is trying to get pastors now interested in this no-debt policy, mm -hmm. and he's made a very tremendous point, mm -hmm. and it is this. When a church is in debt and is paying interest mm -hmm. to a bank, it is taking the Lord's money in the form of that interest and paying it to ungodly people. That's correct. And that is an immoral use of God's money. God's money must go to God's work. Mm -hmm. An interest payment to a banker is not God's work. That's correct. I had an experience. I don't know if I mentioned this the last time we were together, but this was when our church raised, oh, three, we, went, we needed $300,000 to complete a uh, school sanctuary office complex, and we were all prepared to borrow the money. And I had uh, this is was uh, I had an experience where I, I met with actually several bankers who were all solicitous of doing business with us because we had a very good financial statement. But I was very impressed one night that by me going to the bankers to get their money, as well as uh, expose financial information about the members of our church. Uh, going over our membership role, these kinds of things. It was strongly impressed upon me that I was somehow indecently exposing the bride of Christ, which is the mm -hmm. church. And, in fact, I had a dream where uh, I was impressed that in some way that the dress of, on, uh, on this woman who represented the bride of Christ to me, the church, was just continually being raised up in the presence of the bankers. And uh, it wasn't just that impression and thought alone that caused me to reverse uh, the approach that we were going to take in terms of getting the money from the bankers. I then began an extensive study on the subject of debt from the scriptures and uh, saw that, uh, that it just was not God's best program for us to incur that kind of debt to raise that money. Uh, we ended up uh, going on a nine-month season of sacrifice where the people fasted once a week and we all made uh, uh, special uh, 
we did a lot of things with our own personal budgets, and we made some pledges, and many people got second and third jobs. And uh, we went strong for nine months as a community of people, and we raised the entire amount. Uh, actually, we raised $100,000 more than we uh, needed to raise. And this was a group of uh, young couples. Young couples, college students. College students. You were the old man in the group when That's you left right. at 35. That's correct. And they not only raised uh, 400000 and put up an excellent plant, but mm -hmm. bought the land yes. next door. That's right. And in the process, the men started 28 new businesses to help further finance the Lord's work. Yeah, it, it was a remarkable testimony, and on top of all that, we realized that we were we had saved something uh, like eight hundred thousand dollars in interest payments. Yes, uh, had we had had we gone to the bank, and also, uh, you know, the Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. Yes, it, let's face it, debt is a form of slavery, yes. and God's will is that we would be free. It was for freedom's sake that Christ. You know, has set us free. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And I, I know for myself, I like freedom. But as a result of going debt-free, it gave our church the freedom to plant two other churches, one in Dayton, Ohio, and now the one I'm in in Tampa, Florida, as well as strongly contribute to the development of a crisis pregnancy center, which has saved several lives since it, you know, it it, it uh, began. And now the church is even prepared. Uh, to shortly be planting another church. Now, all of this would have been impossible had we been saddled with the with this huge uh, payment to the bankers each month. It's worth it to go debt free. It's harder. Uh, there are sacrifices involved. There are you know personal cutbacks that we needed to make, but it's worth it in the end. Well, to continue now, Joseph. Uh, could you tell us something about the biblical models for fundraising? Yes, uh, and as I do, I, I want to bring to the fore uh, one very important word in the whole area of money in general, fundraising included, and that is just the word integrity. Yes. Integrity is a character trait that definitely needs to be restored in the body of Christ. I heard a story about Ted Williams the other day. I know you like baseball stories. Yes, Lisa, so I do. <laughs> I wanted to recount this one to you, and I think it, it's representative of integrity. Uh, Ted Williams was the highest paid player in baseball in the year 1959. At that point, he was drawing what would be a piddly salary by today's standards, but $120,000, uh, a very good salary in 1959. Uh, but in 1959, he had a, a relatively poor year hitting. Ted Williams, you know, was one of the great hitters of all time. Last person to hit 400, over 400. Yes. Anyway, uh, that year, Ted batted due to a slight neck injury. 200, I think he batted 269. The first mm -hmm. time in his career, he batted under 300. Well, when 1960 rolled along, the, the Red Sox sent him his contract, which again was for $120,000. But Ted Williams sent the contract back with a letter saying, I have been the highest paid player in professional baseball, and you expect a level and a standard of performance out of me that I do not conscientiously feel that I lived up to last season. 
Therefore, I want to take the highest possible pay cut that was allowable according to the Major League Baseball rules, mm-hmm. which was a 25% pay cut. And uh, he sent that letter back to the Red Sox, and they sent, wrote, wrote up a new contract for $97,000. Now, to me, that's integrity. Yes. And how few stories like that do we hear these days concerning uh, that in relationship to money? Another story, this was told to me by my brother, who's a political fundraiser, and but it's a, a story of the 1948 campaign, presidential campaign, when uh, I believe that was Dewey versus Truman. Right. And uh, since I was born in 1950, you would have <laughs> more knowledge of that campaign than I would, Roussas, but... According to my studies, at least, the Dewey was heavily favored right up to the night before the election. And uh, about 10 days before the election, the campaign committee approached Truman, and they wanted to do these radio spots throughout the country that was going to cost $20,000. And uh, they had exhausted all their resources and their donors, and uh, they had nowhere to turn, and in desperation, they contacted one donor who promised to put up half the money, $10,000, uh, if he could have a hearing with a meeting with, Pres- uh, with President Truman. And Truman met with him, and the man said that, I'll give you the $10,000 if you will do this, that, and the other concerning policies of Truman. And the story goes, Truman kicked the man out of his office and said, I'd rather not have the money than, you know, to have this have this money come to me, but then be uh, enslaved to this man's particular policy. Well, as a result of Truman's response, and I guess this was in the presence of several of his aides, they were so moved by the conviction and integrity of Truman in this incident that they themselves pulled out their checkbooks and began writing out monies, and the word of this spread, and within two days, the Democrats had their $20,000, and they were able to do the radio spots, and as you know, Truman went on and, and won that election. I don't want to comment totally on the character of Harry Truman. I'm sure that's quite a subject of controversy, but at least in that incident, yeah. he manifest financial integrity. Uh, you know, it's interesting when we look at the subject of leadership in the scriptures, one of the prerequisites for leadership, according to Paul in his letter to Titus in 1 Timothy and 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that the leader must be above reproach. Now the Greek word for above reproach means cannot be bought. Does not have a price. And that to me is at the heart and soul and essence of leadership in every realm. We need to have men and women in every position of leadership that don't have a price tag. And it's sad today, like what the kind of leadership that we have that will do anything for a certain price. And we can give many stories there. But what does the Bible have to say about fundraising? I think the Bible has a lot to say about that. I always uh, like to quote uh, Psalm 119, or uh, 119, 128, where the psalmist says, there, this is New American Standard Version. He says, Therefore, I esteem as right all thy precepts yes. concerning everything. Now, 
it's amazing how we as Christians have been able to abstract certain subjects from the scriptures and say, well, the Bible just doesn't speak to that. Therefore, we have to do what everybody else is doing. And that's what we've done with fundraising. Mm -hmm. We've just borrowed whatever Madison Avenue, whatever our secular counterparts are doing, the most... We even use some of the same organizations, some of the very same organizations that the humanistic and political organization use are used by many of our larger Christian TV ministries. Um, and so the philosophy and ethic of that fundraising organization then comes to play on, uh, on upon the church and prey upon the church. But the Bible has a lot to say about money. I don't think there's a subject in the scriptures that the Bible speaks more directly and clearly to. And it actually gives us three case studies uh, of uh, incidents where monies needed to be raised for the purposes of God. One was the construction of the tabernacle, uh, which we read about in Exodus, actually seven chapters. Exodus 25 through 32 covers that. Also, uh, the temple. Uh, we are given a very detailed account of that in First Chronicles chapters 21 and 22. And then thirdly, an incident in the early church where monies needed to be raised to help the needy in Jerusalem. And Paul spends two chapters in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 discussing uh, the, the need and principles uh, and a philosophy and approach to raising money. So we have some very clear-cut principles and case studies to look at in the scriptures that can help us uh, approach the subject of fundraising. I, and I do want to make the statement, I believe in fundraising. Uh, I believe it's, a, it, it's, it's something that God calls us to. It's an aspect of stewardship, and we need to raise money for many of the ministries and works that we're all involved in. The issue is, well, how are we going to go about raising the money? What does the Bible have to say about that? And I have four principles that I want to just quickly comment upon. Uh, the first one is that funds are only to be raised for persons and projects that God himself ordains. Now, that we really need to spend more time uh, determining whether or not God is in this particular ministry or this project or this need. There's, we, I think in our present society, we, we have, there's a modern frenzy with meeting needs. Wherever we see a need, in fact, uh, from my work in Washington, uh, there's a good amount of time politicians spend racking their brains trying to find needs <laughs> yes. so that they can capitalize on. Yes. Uh, I don't want to get too much off on a tangent, but I remember reading the story of Joseph McCarthy uh, who, as a young congressman, when he was in Washington, uh, was looking for a need and uh, was somewhat motivated by uh, how he could make use of that particular problem of fighting communism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is common to many politicians who will grasp for a need that then they can uh, you know, ride uh, the banner of that need and become a great humanitarian or whatever by then throwing the taxpayer's money at that particular need. And this is also done in the church. Just because there's a need out there does not mean that God has called us to meet that particular need. Uh, and I'm all for meeting needs, and I believe in needs being met, but at the same time, I think we need to exercise real prudence, uh, 
real caution, real wisdom, to see if God wants us to get involved in meeting that particular need. Uh, I think there's ministries that have been set up to meet a need that have outlived their time. Uh, there's conferences I know that have started that uh, were to serve a certain purpose. They may have met that purpose, but it, it's just like in our government bureaucracy. Once you set something up, and it's not only true for government, it's true in the church. Once you set up a program or a project or a ministry, we feel this great obligation to keep funding it, keep throwing yeah. money at it, keep perpetuating it. Let Ishmael live, we continue <laughs> to cry out. And so we need to take more time and determine whether or not this ministry is something God's really called us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus gave us some very practical wisdom. He says, hey, if you're going to go out and build a tower, first sit down. He says, if you're going to go out and fight a battle, he says, first sit down, then take counsel. With building the tower, he said, first sit down and then calculate the cost. But I like the, the posture phrase that the Lord gives us. He says, first sit down. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know many successful executives who attribute much of their success to that when they got an idea, they first of all sat on it. Instead of just running with it or and, and just going crazy with that particular idea, we need to sit down mm-hmm. and examine this problem or this project in terms of God's Word. Mm-hmm. We need to get counsel. Does God really want us to do this? Mm-hmm. Now, we know with the tabernacle and the temple and the the needs that the people uh, had in Jerusalem that God wanted the other churches to support, these were issues and projects and needs that God himself had called his people to take care of. And that's the first principle. We have got to ascertain, is this ministry, is this project really born of God, and does God want us to continue supporting it? Yes. Secondly... Uh, I, a very basic principle of Christian fundraising is this, is that people must be free to determine for themselves whether and how much they should give in accordance with their faith. Now, the point that needs to be made there is there's a difference between tithes and offerings. To me, yes. the tithe is not an option. The tithe is a commandment, it's a requirement of the Lord, the first tenth, of our income mm-hmm. is holy unto God and we are obligated to put that money into the service of the Lord. Christian fundraising, in my opinion, deals with the whole realm of offerings. And in the realm of offerings, we oftentimes use the phrase free will offerings. People need to be free to determine in accordance with their faith and also with their budgets, I'd like to add, whether or not they should support that thing. Now, when we read the accounts of the tabernacle and the temple, we see how the people's hearts were moved by God to give to that particular thing that God had called them to give to. And that God had even uh, prepared those people and even provided for those people so that they would give. And uh, I really believe there's much that could be said here about how we need to educate our people in the whole area of stewardship and our responsibility to support those works that are truly born of God. One of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 8.18, where uh, Moses says, You shall remember the Lord your God, because it's he that gives you the power to make wealth, so that he might confirm his covenant. Through biblical work, that's the power that's conferred upon us from God, that's, that is then translated into 
a biblical work ethic, the expression of work, is where is where wealth is created. God just doesn't give us wealth. He gives us the power to make wealth. And that power is equated with a biblical work ethic. And then through biblical work, wealth is created. And the purpose of wealth being created is not just to meet our needs, but then it's to confirm his covenant. It's to extend the covenant of the Lord. So therefore, projects and ministries that are truly extending the covenant... And I think there's much need, a great need for teaching concerning the covenant. What is God's covenant purpose in the earth today? But we should be directing our free will offerings to particularly uh, ministries and projects that are extending the covenant of the Lord. Your point with regard to Deuteronomy, uh, remember that it is the Lord thy God who giveth thee power to get wealth. I think is very appropriate for our time because recent studies have shown that the people who make less than $25,000 a year, the families, give a higher proportion of their income Mm. to charitable and Christian causes than do those who make from $25,000 to a hundred thousand dollars. That's correct. Now that's a startling fact. Mm-hmm. It means the middle class, which historically has been the mainstay of every worthwhile cause in Western civilization, is now deserting these things because it wants uh, a place in the mountains or uh, a boat, mm-hmm. uh, different luxuries. But it's the young couples and the poor generally, mm-hmm. who are today the best givers in the country, the highest percentage. That's correct. So, uh, and the sad fact is that many of those young couples, as their income increases and gets over 25000 mm-hmm. begin to give less. Yes. That's why when they have attained that status, God says, Remember, it is the Lord thy God who giveth thee power to get wealth. Yes, uh, I, I, I was just thinking of the prophet Hosea in uh, his thirteenth chap in the thirteenth chapter, where it says uh, God speaking through the prophet says, "I gave them green pasture, and they became satisfied. And being satisfied, they therefore became proud. And being proud, they forgot me." And there is another wonderful warning in Deuteronomy that. God admonished his people that when they came into the land that they were going to have to be careful to remember the Lord Mm -hmm. and to remember their origins and to remember that it was the Lord that is the one that has truly blessed them and prospered them. What happens oftentimes, Rusas, is that uh, as a young person, say, or a middle-aged person, whatever, as they come into the faith, humbly before God, and begin to apply God's word into their lives, and God begins to transform their character and their lives, uh, and even the way they work. And as a result of applying biblical principles, as working unto the Lord, they begin to prosper. But oftentimes it's at that point that they fall into, to me, like one of the great diseases of our day today, which I call Christian humanism. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about secular humanism, and I'm disturbed with the problems of secular humanism. 
but I'm greatly disturbed about Christian humanism, which is the same thing where it's man in his self-centered being determining for himself what he's going to do with his money in this area. We have Christian trimmings and trappings and externals around us. We're very pharisaical in this regard, but on the inside, we're humanistic in the way we handle money. So I think it was even Martin Luther who was reflecting upon this problem back in the 16th century when he said, in his opinion, every Christian needed two conversions, one for his soul and the other for his pocketbook. Yes. There's not an area of life that we have abstracted from God's Word and abstracted from the kingdom of God as the area of money. It's incredible how we have been able to be so, as Christians, the Christian community, so fully humanistic in the way we handle our money. We we call it our money. We've missed the concept of biblical stewardship. On top of that, one of the disastrous facts of our time is that the average Christian in the United States is more in debt Mm. than the non-Christian. That's correct. Because he believes that the Lord is going to bail him out. Mm -hmm. And all he has to do when he's in a pinch is to pray and the Lord is going to take care of him. That's blasphemous. It certainly is blasphemous, and it rarely happens. Occasionally, I call it the lottery mentality. Somebody wins the lottery, but we take we we make a standard. Oftentimes, it's those kind of wild testimonies that we even hear come across in our periodicals and and uh, Christian TV programs of someone that did something foolish like that with their money, and where God maybe did bail that person out, and then other people try to do it and. You know, it just doesn't work. And some of your television evangelists encourage that kind of uh, mentality. Well, now they're even encouraging people to uh, put it on their credit card. This is actually going on now where they're, make, they're, make, they're saying, call in, we can take your donation uh, right over the telephone. All we need is your MasterCard and Visa number. And, hey, here's the thing. Maybe you don't have the money right now, but God will provide Jehovah Jireh and, uh, you know, in 30 days when your statement is due, not only will you have your money, but again, you'll have your 30, 60, 100 fold. Mm-hmm. Because uh, given, it will be given unto you. Now, you see, this promise box theology, you know, like where we take yes. these verses totally out of context, mm-hmm. even that give and it shall be given unto you needs to be read in light of the entire Sermon on the Mount, which... Uh, uh, gives a completely more balanced perspective yes. to you know that one you know we, we make that a blanket promise and uh, it doesn't work like that and you see the problem for me Rusas as a financial counselor I deal with the casualties I get the yes. I'm the one that gets the phone calls and the letters uh, of people who recount their horror story to me of how their pastor or their evangelist or someone said if if you'll give us this amount of money then this is going to happen to you. It rarely happens. Sometimes it does. But again, sometimes people win the lottery too. But just because someone might luck out doesn't mean that that's God's way of doing it. Or take your savings out of the bank. Or cash in your pension or insurance. That type of appeal. Invest in oil wells in Israel. That was a big (laughs) scam they had going on in Florida a couple years where people lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Exhausted their their savings, their... their, uh, educational savings they had for their kids and invested in in barren oil wells in Israel. Uh, 
the madness mm-hmm. is beyond even anything I'm, I'm even yes. saying today, yes. Rusas. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. Well, let me just briefly mention two more principles that uh, are related to biblical fundraising here. One is the, uh, uh, well, the second one I mentioned is that people need to be free, and they and we should not give out of uh, a whole guilt mentality, the crisis mentality mm-hmm. that comes across to us in the appeals, uh, that uh, God's going to judge them if they don't give, or giving to get, and uh, the whole emotional thing that we use. We send these, you know, these gory pictures of, of forty-pound-year-old teenagers in uh, in the Sudan, yes. and and you know, uh, manip- trying to manipulate people into giving like that. Uh, but also, people need to know specifically what the funds are being used for. Yes. Now, I think the tabernacle is a great uh, illustration for us there, because God gave the whole blueprint of the tabernacle to Moses who then shared it with the people. Mm-hmm. And then the people gave from the monies that they had collected exactly. when they left Egypt, but they knew what it was going for. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew it was going for this the tabernacle of God. And today we get so many appeals uh, that uh, you know for money, but we don't know where it's going exactly. Uh, we don't know how the, if the funds are going to be properly accounted for. Uh, and as more and more stories begin to unfold, we see that these monies were not being used for like what they said they were. And I think yes. I think that uh, if we're going to be going public in our solicitation of funds as Christians, we're going to the entire body of Christ, then we need to have a financial statement, yes. an audited financial statement that we can send to our donors. And we need to be a little bit more specific in telling people where the money's going to go. What monies are going to going towards salary and administration costs and travel and hush money or whatever we're using the money for? <laughs> <laughs> and then the last thing I wanted to say, principle. The last principle is that God truly is glorified when monies are raised for His work and His purpose. Yes. I certainly hope that people, as a result of this tape, don't shut up their pocketbooks and. And say, gosh, there's so much, so many problems out there, and uh, that I, I'm just not going to give anymore. Uh, biblical giving is an expression of our stewardship to God. Uh, again, we need to give in order to extend the covenant of the Lord. And great monies are needed to further God's work in the earth today. Uh, and and uh, God is honored when people uh, do give to those works and those ministries and those projects that are conducting themselves in accordance with these biblical principles, that truly are conducting themselves in integrity. And there's a good number of them. There are many fine Christian works and churches and ministries that are out there. And I really encourage people to be gracious and to be supportive. God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, God doesn't want us to be tight-fisted with our money. He doesn't want us to be stingy. God is not stingy. He's a very wonderful, gracious God. And similarly, we're to be gracious people. We're to be a sacrificial people. But what we what we need to do, though, is give in accordance with the principles that God has outlined for us in the Scripture. Yes. Uh, I read this past year uh, quite a bit on uh, the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Periodically, the church would decline dramatically, and then there would be a tremendous reformation. A tremendous surge forward. It was interesting to see what caused this. 
it was when people began to give generously to the right kind of thing. Yeah. To things which had an impact on the future. Mm-hmm. People were always ready to give to something that was trifling mm-hmm. or of no count mm-hmm. or purely uh, ornamental, as it were, to uh, the faith. But whenever they said, now, here is a group that is working to establish studies in a particular field or a mission to a particular cause, and these are people who are lean and hard in their approach towards the use of God's money, then things began to happen. Mm -hmm. They began to have an impact on the future because they were giving to things that were future-oriented. Now, uh, I think the work you're doing in the church is like that, and the work you're doing with us in Chalcedon is like that. We're not thinking just of something that's going to uh, make a show on television or in print or on Main Street or any other thing. We are thinking of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice. And this is the kind of thing that will determine the future. So Christians need to start giving again. That's correct. They need to give and to give generously, to give in a biblical pattern. Mm -hmm. Second, they need to give to that which will have an impact on the future. Mm -hmm. Not something that, uh, well, this pleases me and Mm -hmm. I I like to be a part of something like this. Vanity giving. Yes. Vanity giving. Yes. There's a great deal of that, mm-hmm. and it's done in God's name, mm-hmm. and that's altogether wrong. And God is shaking that. That's what's yes. being shaken in this hour. And uh, I'm, to be honest with you, Rusas, I'm very excited and pleased by what's happening right now in the body of Christ. Uh, many people I talk to are, are apprehensive and forlorn and discouraged and holding their heads down, but I'm excited. Because God is shaking whatever can be shaken. Why? So that which cannot be shaken will remain. And I believe there's going to be an emergence of the local church. And there's going to be an emergence of those ministries that are conducting themselves in integrity and are extending the covenant of the Lord. And they are going to emerge. And the amusement park, circus fluff, uh, flaky Christianity that we're all fed up with, that that Christians are sick of, God is finally shaking that. Judgment has begun in the household of God. And it's good. Well, uh, I'll get the last word in (laughs) if I may, just very quickly and briefly. By about 1820, something began in this country which had a devastating effect on the church here. The star system. Oh. One figure as the star with all the people as spectators supporting him, exalting him, and enjoying being part of a big thing. Well, most, but not all, of your television ministries have been instances of the star system, and it's breaking down. Yes, it is. We need people who are not stars, but pastors. That's correct. We need discipleship. Mm-hmm. We need a situation in which we are uh, uh, we move from spectator Christianity mm-hmm. 
to active, working Christianity. Well, our time is up. God bless you all. Thank you, Joseph. Well, thank you, Russas.